Welcome to Pretend I Know Nothing About. I'm Katie White, your host, administrator of COAAA. Today we are discussing all things advocacy with Chief Policy Officer at the Ohio Association of Area Agencies on Aging and the COAAA Government and Community Relations Manager. Let's get into it. Well, welcome. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Um, Let's go ahead and get started with introductions. Beth, do you want to go first? Sure. Thank you. And thanks for having me today. My name is Beth Kowalsik, and I'm the uh, Chief Policy Officer for the Ohio Association of Area Agencies on Aging. Thank you, Beth. And Grant. And I'm Grant Ames. I'm the Government and Community Relations Manager here at COAAA. Great. One of the things that I think is really fun is to kind of get to know people and how they came to be in these positions. So Beth, give us just a brief history of um, what you've done and how you got to be at O4A. Sure. Um, Well, I started out my career um, graduating from law school and wanting to make a difference in my community. And so I started as a legal aid attorney in Steubenville, Ohio, with Southeast Ohio Legal Services and had the opportunity to represent vulnerable Ohioans on a number of civil legal issues like housing, domestic violence, government benefits, and things like that. But it really made me realize how important policy is and addressing issues from um, the level of a systemic change and systemic issues. And so um, I had the opportunity to work in the Columbus office of Ohio State Legal Services Association and work on public benefits issues with the government, um, the state government and with the General Assembly. Um, Then I got to do some policy work on those issues at the Department of Job and Family Services. So really got to have an opportunity to work on policy from a number of levels. And then um, when I came to O4A, had the um, opportunity to work with the organizations who actually carry out the policy at the local level and represent them. And so continuing my advocacy and policy work throughout my career, but it's and continuing to represent vulnerable Ohioans um, and now looking at uh, older Ohioans and people with disabilities, representing them and giving them a voice and giving the area agencies a voice. Wow. See, it's this is why I love this part, because I've known you for years and I didn't know about that whole <laughs> path. Wonderful. Well, thank you. And Grant, how about you? Well, I've been involved in politics pretty much since I started my career. I started my career with um, city council um, about 10 years ago. So I am working, uh, I worked for council member Mitchell Brown for about eight to nine years. Um, One of his committees was the aging and veterans committee. So that was, um, it was actually a committee that we started on city council. It had been a committee. Um, Senator Herschel Craig, when he was on Columbus city council, started the veterans committee because he's a veteran and really thought that they needed a representative voice and Columbus City Council. So um, when Councilmember Brown got there, we really were like, well, there's no real issue specific to older adults or seniors. So we really need to lean in and see what we can do there. Um, did a lot of work with uh, the Honorable Fran Ryan, uh, always involved and always pushing for change and especially pushing for um, representation of seniors. So um, after starting that committee, we did a lot of work in um Expanding the villages program, providing them with support from the city level, um, doing specific programming for older adults around um, around crisis intervention, around making sure they had everything that they needed for like co- cold weather events, um, making sure that we got involved with the Red Cross and and getting them supplies and things like that. So um, really started that focus there, and then um, when this position opened up, I wanted to continue that work, working with older adults and continuing to push 
push for policy change around that area. Um, and so I started here and I'm, I've been loving it ever since. So Grant and I worked together when I was at Age Friendly, and he was in city council. And really at the beginning of Age Friendly, when we we first set up our initial committees, um, you were there leading the safety committee. And it's been great to kind of work with you in all these various um, capacities over the years and just a real joy and um, a real bright spot that you're on COAAA staff now because you've got – all of the pieces, right? Like, so your personal journey in um, politics and leadership, but then working from the inside of city council, and now we're on the outside kind of tapping in. And so, you know, all the inner workings. So, well, thank you both again for being here. I'm so excited about this conversation. Um, It's a topic I find thrilling, which is all about the Older Americans Act. It's about policy. It's about budgeting and funding. um, And of course, a lot about advocacy. So, I think um, for the purposes of just rounding out what we're going to talk about, let's start with the Older Americans Act. So, Grant, do you want to kind of give us a little history of the Older Americans Act and just talk a bit about that? Yeah. So I'm sure folks know, and the folks especially that have gone through orientation here, we talk about it a lot, but the Older Americans Act is kind of like our founding document. Um, It is what developed area agencies on aging and really um, set forth a federal policy around aging issues and making sure that individuals receive support as they grow older. Um, There was a consensus in the country around that time that older adults were dying in poverty, um, dying without much um, medical care or um, family assistance. And there was a real big push nationally to make sure that folks were taken care of. Um, And Lyndon Johnson was the president that kind of spearheaded this issue in his war on poverty in the 1960s and ultimately moved forward on um, both Older Americans Act legislation as well as developing um, some of the White House conferences on aging, the first of which actually happened before he became president in 1958. So that would have been the Eisenhower administration that initially um, called for that White House conference on aging. Um Then we had a few iterations of the Older Americans Act prior to um, AAAs being established, but in 1965 was the passage of the Older Americans Act that pretty much established this policy framework around aging policy, around issues involving older adults and making sure that there wasn't only funding, but there were um, vested goals in making sure that those folks were supported moving forward. Um, In 19... Let me see here. In 1973 was when the second iteration of the Older Americans Act was passed, and that called for the development of state units on aging. For us, that's the Ohio Department of Aging. Um, And then it also established the AAAs in each of the regions. So uh, where CO AAA was a small part of the city of Columbus. I think at that that time, we only had seven employees, and it was actually called the Franklin County Commission on Aging, I believe. Um, Once this this 1973 version of the Older Americans Act passed, that expanded into COAAA, expanded across our eight counties that we're responsible for, and established us as a federally mandated agency that does that work. So the Older Americans Act is reauthorized every few years. Um, We're actually in the process of that reauthorization next year. 
So we'll be meeting with our elected officials and talking about ways that that can change and adjust to make sure that we're still meeting those needs, meeting those needs of our community and making sure that our federal mandate continues to be met and that the folks here locally are receiving the support that they need. Yes. So 1973, area agencies on aging come into existence. There are 12 in Ohio. So COAAA is one of 12. We serve eight counties. And really, the the area agencies on aging are the local leaders in planning, developing, funding, implementing, and providing all of these services. And so again, today's really focusing on that advocacy piece because... As we will now discuss the federal budget where the Older Americans Act is funded is part of a small pot of money that is called non-defense discretionary funds. So let's talk a little bit about at the federal level what that funding looks like, how we keep it in the budget, and how much we have to really advocate and fight for it. So Beth, do you mind speaking about that? Sure. Um, so the federal budget's made up of a number of components, and the non-discretionary are things like Medicare and um, other larger social programs that are mandated to be funded by federal law. Um, the Older Americans Act falls under, as you said, a small little bit of the budget called non-defense discretionary. And because it's discretionary, um, uh the legislature has the um, ability to shift it. And so the Older Americans Act is among the programs that could be at risk for funding cuts, um, but also could receive increases depending on you know how much uh, funding is available. And so it's really important because it's such it's also because one of the things that people don't necessarily think about, particularly our legislators, that we really have to advocate um, in terms of telling the story of the Older Americans Act and the importance to their constituents, to the people that we serve, um, so that they recognize that it's important, one, not to cut the funding, but two, that it's currently not meeting the needs of the people we serve. Our population of older adults continues to grow, but that um, particular line of funding does not. Um, it's not enough to meet the needs. So we have to really be vigilant and continuing to advocate, keeping this on the radar of um, our congressional delegation so that they're um, focused on it and understand its importance. Yeah. So the Older Americans Act keeps us in the federal budget in that non-defense discretionary fund. But each and every year, we have to go to D.C., well, all through the year, really, um, and really advocate for all of our needs and share those numbers and that data and meet with people to say, hey, in your district back in Ohio, here's what this small pot of money really boils down to for an individual. So Grant and I were able to go to D.C. last year, and I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about our visits on the Hill. Yeah. So I think the real important point to underscore is that the majority of the services and programs that are offered in our local communities for older adults are funded locally. These federal funds, while absolutely important and imperative to providing direct services that are needed, 
um, haven't been able to keep up with the demand that we've been seeing, both an increase in population as well as in- increase in service needs. Um, so as we have these conversations with legislators, it's and a lot of times it's really easy to tie um, one of the major programs that the Older Americans Act funds here locally is um, Meals on Wheels programs in each of our counties. So it's really easy to discuss that with them. They can tangibly understand like what a meal is, what does that equate to, how many people are being fed, what is how many people are volunteering, like those type of things. A really an easy story to tell and and easy to say like these are the funding that we need to continue this um where it kind of gets a little muddier and where we really have to tell a, a deeper story of the impact of the funds is when we talk about supportive services so that things like transportation personal care adult day services things like that that might not necessarily be top of mind for someone that in need when you're thinking about the health concerns and other things that our older adults are facing but really making sure that we hammer home that these things that you might not necessarily think are vital to their health and well-being are absolutely that. Um, And we really do a good job of presenting not only how the limited funds are spent and how effective we are at translating that into improved quality of life, but also that the funds that we're receiving aren't enough for us to continue the services at the level that we really want to. And I think that whenever we have those conversations with legislators, we're problem solving and having conversations around how to adjust and and make sure that those services continue in the way that we want them to, but also always advocating for more because knowing that the demand is there and knowing that our population is uh, the population of older adults in in our area, as well as across the nation is growing. Um, We just need to keep it top of mind for them because um, we know that those are the folks that vote. Those are the people that are going to show up at their town hall meetings and they want to do this they want to turn around and be able to say, this is what I've done to support folks in your position. And and I think we have a really strong advocacy position in that way. Yeah. And so when we were in D.C. in March and doing our Hill visits, we had, you know, our packets of information around how much Title III funding, which is the title underneath the Older Americans Act that we're talking about right now, our federal funding um, that really supports those home and community-based services that are non-Medicaid. Um, and before we even get there, there's a ton of work that goes into getting these meetings prepared, getting the meetings on the books, setting up our appointments. And then we spend one day around education and kind of catching up with our colleagues from across the U.S. and our colleagues from across the state. And then the next day we really go out and we we visit our representatives and we start to talk about the real issues. So um that is a really important day for lots of reasons, but I also feel like it's it's a good momentum for the year around, okay, this is real. These are real people, these representatives, and they sit in their offices in D.C. and you have a good conversation and um, it really does make an impact. So the Older Americans Act federal funds that are Title III come into our state units on aging, right? And are those funds guaranteed once they're passed through into our state? We don't have to advocate for any increases at the state level for those funds, correct? That's correct. There's a there's a funding formula that the state um, designates, and that hasn't changed. 
Um, and so once the, the state has access to the funds, it's just a matter of distributing them to the area agencies. Okay. And we're a little bit unique because we're part of the city. So Grant, when we find out what our distribution will be, what are our um, steps to making sure that that funding actually comes into our office yeah. and then back out into the hands of the service providers? Yeah, I can share a little bit about that. So um, I will say that there is, and Beth, can, you can correct me if there, if I'm wrong about this, but I know that the state does provide some additional funds as matching funds for those federal dollars that come in. So we receive some of that funding as well to make sure that we can um, meet that federal requirement for match. Um, so state block grant, right? Yes, yeah, state mm-hmm. block grant funding. Okay. Um, so we have that amount as well as what we receive federally. Um, we get that in from the Ohio Department of Aging and we're required to do a RFP process for all of the direct service providers here locally for both our Title Three B, which are those supportive services, and Title Three C programs, which are Meals on Wheels or um, home delivered meals, and then as well as congregate meals. So um, we go through that process every four years. Um, each AAA is a little bit different. Some do two years, some do a, a four year period. Um, we do four years because we just feel like it makes sure that these folks that are receiving the funding are in a in a place that they can continue those programs across that four year span. Having to reapply and have not knowing whether that funding is going to be there the next year can sometimes cause some consternation and some concern. Uh, so making sure that they have that set, okay, we have this for four years, we can build this program out, identify consumers, get everything that we need in place. And then by the time that four years up, we can actually show the impact that we've made during that period. So um, that's how we do that process here. We usually receive about 100 applications for, uh, I think we offer about 17 different services um, across um, across those Title III B and Title III C. So we have a, a litany of different providers. Sometimes we have mental health providers that are able to provide um, counseling sessions for folks. Again, I mentioned transportation providers. Um, we also provide like homemaking services. And I know our folks are, are well aware of what that what that service is and how helpful that is for folks. I think it just, so as we're going through that process, we're weighing both our area plan and every four years as well. And it's kind of offset. We do an area plan that does an analysis of the needs in the community. We right. do a needs assessment based on a survey results, as well as discussions with an area, both providers as well as residents to make sure that we know exactly what's going on and where we need to direct this funding to make sure that has the biggest impact. So we use that in alignment with what our staff is saying are needs, what our consumers are saying is need our needs, um, and what is the best quote unquote bang for our buck um, to making sure that we can get as many services out the door as possible while still um, being fiscally responsible. Um, so we go through that process. Uh, we have to go through a, a fair number of approvals. So we start with our advisory council, which meets every month. Uh, they have to approve what we do. They are mandated by the Older Americans Act. That's a section that AAAs are responsible for um, 
for bringing together an advisory council of uh, area advocates, older adults themselves, and and providers um, to give us guidance and advice on how we're utilizing these Older Americans Act funds. So that's kind of our first phase. Um, then we have uh, the next step is because we're the city of Columbus, we're part of the Recreation and Parks Department. Recreation and Parks is a little bit different than any other department in the city in that they have a commission. So that commission meets monthly. They talk about legislation that's going on. They talk about policy and practices within the the entire department, including with the AAA, um, and really give us guidance as well as a community perspective on um, what we're doing, how we could do it better, and uh, and approving everything that we have. And then finally, the last step is for city council to approve all of those contracts and all the funding. Uh, So that actually is happening next Monday. I'm really excited to see all of those contracts move forward and so that we can start services in the beginning of next year. Um, but as you can tell, the legislative process is always a little bit complicated, always has a, a few more steps than you would think it would normally have, and uh, just takes a little bit of, of handholding to make sure that we get this stuff across the finish line. And so all of that work from D.C. to, to COAAA to Rec and Parks to Columbus City Council is to the tune of about $6 million in um, home and community-based services for our providers across our eight-county region. So that's a lot of work for $6 million, which is why we're saying as the need increases, our funding needs to increase as well. So let's shift gears a little bit and now get into some state budgeting, some state politics. So Beth, do you mind doing an overview of how the state budget works? Oh, yes. This is the stuff I love to talk about. Um, So the state budget is essentially the primary policy document for the state of Ohio. you, you put your money where your mouth is. So where the funding priorities go, that's where the priorities of the state are. So it's like hugely important. It's our main advocacy um, avenue for the area agencies on aging. And um, it funds things across the spectrum. Um, the way that the state budget works is that departments in state government, like the Department of Aging and the Department of Medicaid, submit budget proposals to the governor's office, to the Office of Budget and Management for consideration. And so they look at all of the programs that they fund. If they uh, propose new programs, they may be asked to consider whether there's places they can cut funding. So all of that goes into a budget proposal that the governor's office reviews. Um, And then that process culminates into a bill that is introduced in the legislature. Um, Now, that process actually takes several months to go from the instructions to the departments to the bill. And during that time, there's a whole lot of opportunity to talk with administrative agencies like the Department of Aging and Medicaid uh, about what they are proposing. And that's something we do is really get in there early, because if you can get a proposal into the budget bill without having to amend it later, then you have... um, really uh, achieved, um, you know, you're ahead of the game when you've done that. So the bill's introduced in the General Assembly. It's introduced in the House. It's the governor's budget. um, So it's the proposal from the governor. It goes through a process of where um, several committees hear different parts of the bill. And what that means is they consider testimony from individuals and organizations and then uh, make recommendations to amend the bill. And in that process, our piece 
falls within the uh, finance committee subcommittee for health and human services. That's our committee. And it's a small committee usually made up of five legislators. They take testimony um, from all the health and human services organizations, from people who are impacted, who receive services. Um, and they uh, and it, it can go on for hours. Um, it is a, a real test of your um, stamina and endurance to be able to go through that process, both for the advocates and the legislators have to sit on the committee. But they go through that process. And then um, that's your opportunity then to talk to those subcommittee members and say, hey, we really need more funding here, or we need some policy language here. Can you introduce an amendment? And they consider those amendments. So that's another opportunity for um, advocacy. There are amendments recommended through that subcommittee, and then there's through the finance committee, which is the main vehicle in the House, proposes a substitute bill. That substitute bill takes all those amendments and that all the committees have reviewed and recommended, and it really is the House's version of the budget. So it goes from the governor's version when it's introduced to the House's version. The full House votes on that after the finance committee um, puts it together and recommends it. And if it passes, then it moves on to the Senate. The Senate goes through the same process, but they come up with their own version of the bill. (laughs) (laughs) And we have the same opportunities in the Senate to advocate on that as well. And so um, it starts like February and March, depending on which year. And that process through to the Senate tends to be through April or May. The bill's got to be passed by the end of June because that's the end of the fiscal year. There's no authority to spend any money after June 30th. So they have from like February to June 30th to get this done. So the Senate considers the bill, goes through the committee process, and they come up with their version of the bill. And I am the... Many, many years I've done budgets, there's never been um, alignment between the House and Senate version. So okay. they have to come together um, in um, a conference committee, which is um, a small group of legislators from the House and the Senate, usually um, the finance committee chairs and some others who are appointed. They look at all the differences and they reconcile them, which is another opportunity for advocacy. Uh, potentially. Um, And then they produce a bill that they think meets everybody's um, interest. And that is voted on by the House and the Senate. Um, So that hopefully has occurred prior to June 30th. When they vote on that, it then goes to the governor, just like any other bill. But the budget bill is unique because the governor has line item veto power. (laughs) So instead of saying, you know, you remember you're, I'm just a bill, Capitol Hill, and you get a veto, and then, you know, the bill dies. In this situation, the governor actually can, you know, theoretically, but um, take a pen and strike out lines in the state budget because it's an appropriations bill. Hmm. And so you could have a budget bill, but with things in there that are stricken out. And we have had that um, on many occasions. Um, so there's another opportunity to advocate to say to the governor, this was wrong. Can you line item veto it? Or don't, please don't line item veto something. There could be that situation. Then um, 
there's another opportunity because the House and Senate could override the veto. And they have opportunities that would happen after June 30th. They have opportunity to consider that. But hopefully everything, including the governor's signature line item veto, should be done by June 30th or we're in a little bit of um, a pickle and trying to fund the next uh, federal fiscal or state fiscal years um, without appropriations authority. It's kind of amazing that anything gets done or funded. <laughs> I mean, truly. Okay, so we think about all of these different pieces and parts, and I'm scribbling so many notes because it's such a great rendition, and I feel like I can never hear this enough to get it. Um, there's advocacy in the beginning of the process, meeting with the state units on aging. Then there's advocacy when the governor's bill is introduced to the House. There's advocacy when it's introduced to the Senate. There's advocacy at the conference committee. And then there's advocacy all the way around to the Mm -hmm. end, just in case. So I think a great way to um, sort of sort of show how this all works is to talk about what we did with the uh, rates for caregivers. Do you want to kind of talk through that? So um, can we take a step back? Because that is we're focused on advocacy on a particular bill. But, um, you know, one of my jobs is to engage all of you all at AAAs in advocacy throughout the year so that when it's time to go talk to your legislator about the state budget, they already know about your programs. So it's really important that they know the story of what you do and the people you serve. So then when you go in to make that ask, like uh, Grant um, said about the Older Americans Act, showing the impact of the programs, it's the same with the state budget, it's the same with provider rates, that they we shouldn't have to start at square one. So it's really important to establish those relationships, which I know Grant works very hard to maintain um, in your region. Um, it does a great job. So I just wanted to say that we're yes. always advocating. That's a great point. And that's true because you don't only want to be showing up with your electeds when you want money. You want to be inviting them to events. You want to be celebrating things with them. You want to be making sure that they're kept in the loop. So yes, that's a really important piece to make sure we say. Beth hit the nail on the head when she said the word relationships. That's 90% of advocacy is having those relationships, um, being able to communicate with folks on a on a more direct level. It's not... As much as providing information and doing all of this, doing all of this like, hey, this is going to have an impact and and providing numbers and data and all of those things are effective when there's a trust back and forth there that communication can flow and they can trust you to know what you're talking about and for you to say like, this is what I know is best for my consumers and you can trust them to do what they say they're going to do. Mm-hmm. That is where advocacy works best and it really doesn't happen in one meeting. It doesn't happen in one letter. It doesn't happen in one phone call. It's more of getting to know staff, getting to know the electeds themselves, and and making sure that there's a mutual relationship of trust and, and appreciation for what either of us do. So it's both quantity and quality, right? It's consistent Absolutely. communication and relationship building. So just a real quick um, tie in the the advocacy for the caregiver rates will you around the different pieces and parts of the budgeting process and what you um, had us all do? <laughs> well, that was um, 
an enormous effort, but it paid off. It did. It really Literally. did. Yes. <laughs> well, we'll see January well, 1st, true. right? True, true, true. Um, so really, the first step for us at O4A was to determine the priorities of the area agencies on aging. And we heard resoundingly that um, direct care worker wages and provider rates were too low. We were losing providers. People were going months to a year without home care. And we really needed to do something about the rates. Direct care workers were being paid and continue at this point to be paid around 10 to $12 an hour for personal care and passport. Um, and it's really limiting the ability of providers to hire people and to hire quality people. There's a huge amount of turnover um, in the industry right now, um, particularly in passport and agencies that don't have other lines of business that can subsidize the passport rate. Um, are um, struggling, they're closing. So that was emphatically, we needed to focus on that, number one. And so what we did um, was really think about not only was it just that it's a low rate, but also comparing it to rates in um, other types of home care in other programs. And it, we found that um, Passport was one of the lowest rates compared to like the de developmental disability system, uh, Medicare rates, veterans. So all these people going in to do home care, they can get paid different rates and Passport's the lowest. So hmm. um, that's also made it very difficult. So we formulated a priority around increasing rates, but having um, parity across um, all of the different programs so that we're not at a disadvantage in the passport program. And so what that meant is actually working with colleagues across the aisle to figure out what all of these rates were and to come together and say that we were going to support one rate. And so that work had been going on for a while prior to even that time where you start talking to the, um, the uh, state departments. Um, and so we came up with the idea of $20 an hour, at least 50% increase in the rates. And this would also include, I should say, Ohio home care rates as well, because they are also very low. Um, with that, you, you really have to work on that. What is, what is your position? What's your priority? And so with that, we then proceeded to talk to Medicaid, talk to aging, and say how important it was to look at this. And they They've heard about it. We've been informing them of losing providers and things, and they know that people are going without um, services. They didn't know the, to the extent. Um, so um, that's where we started a conversation. But what we did that I think was really effective is um, hold provider roundtables. So instead of the departments having to go or having the um, – providers um, communicate with the state and communicate with legislators. We brought everyone together in a room in each of the AAAs. So legislators were invited, providers were invited, some workers, some um, family caregivers, and people who actually were receiving care all came together to talk about this issue and how important it was. So that was a way to bring it to the policymakers. And I know it made a difference with, at least with the state agencies, um, they had someone at every single meeting, even, you know, they were all around the states, so they were able to cover that and, and be there and hear the stories. 
And the legislators, we had some great engagement with legislators. So this is all before the bill's even introduced. Right. So it's all in support of that. We worked together with the State Coalition of Aging um, Organizations to put together a letter to the governor explaining the need for parity and the low rates. This was, again, also as the governor was considering the budget in, like, October. Um, so when the bill came out, um, we already had a success that there was a proposal for an increase from uh, the 12, $10 to $12 an hour to $16 an hour. So there was a significant proposal of funding to support that increase. And then really the goal was to maintain that because legislators could cut it and to get more. Okay. So we wanted the $20 an hour. So um, that was part of the strategy, was really building it up before it even got introduced into the legislature. And then it was a matter of communicating with legislators, testifying. We had, I think, five or more AAA directors and myself testifying. We met with legislators. Um, and then we had um, an extensive social media campaign. Mm -hmm which I um, was really excited about. It was a trial. We had tested it a little bit in the last state budget, but this one we just went full force um, with some really great um, social media messaging um, that uh, really took advantage of that medium. We had some like one-minute stories from providers and from AAA staff. Um, we thanked legislators online and tagged them. We had some good engagement from legislators as a result of that. And all of the AAAs were doing this together. And so that was really, you could feel the momentum and the power and the excitement around that. So it was all in all with all of those things and many more, and everybody really had a story to share and a part to play in it, that we were able to get um, not quite 20, so we're not done yet, um, but 17 to 18 dollars an hour increase. So more funding was made available to do that. And those rates are um, in proposed rule right now and um, are expected to be implemented January 1st. And those are historic increases. And again, that comes from you all working in setting the statewide priority, kind of letting everybody know the game plan. And then on our side of things, Grant doing things like setting up those visits, running the data points, pulling together our staff to share their stories. We sent letters. Um, what else did we do? We did social media, of course. Yeah. But We submitted testimony. I, I do want to add real quickly, um, I think that this – this is a perfect example of the value of AAAs being so active in advocacy work and so active in pulling these coalitions together. I know a lot of our staff are well aware of this, but all of our providers are very different. Some of them have this ability to do this advocacy. Some of them are very small or one person doing their own work on as an independent contractor. So it's it's really it was really difficult for them to organize and get behind such this messaging to increase these rates but when o4a and the triple a's were able to step in recognize that that would they were a needed part of this entire ecosystem to provide these supportive services it bolstered their ability to advocate on the state level and i think ultimately led to the successes that we had i don't think that we would be in the position that we are with that 17 and 18 dollars an hour without this coordinated advocacy campaign and that coalition of all of the aging advocates coming together and speaking with one voice so that legislators could understand the issue and 
take direct action toward addressing it. Definitely. And I think the value of us leading the charge was that we didn't have direct benefit from it. We're really representing older adults. And um, so we had the benefit of saying, we all need to come together to support this service for them. But the AAAs weren't the ones receiving that money directly. That's such a good point. It's not like we were saying increase our line in the budget so that we're making more money. No, we were saying this is the needed service. And like to tie it back to the Older Americans Act, one of the requirements of the Older Americans Act is that AAAs engage in advocacy at all levels. Yes. And so um, on behalf of older adults. And so this was um, one of those times where we really, I mean, we always come together. This is Ohio's AAAs are amazing in terms of advocacy efforts. But this is one where we really um, came together strong. And um, I felt like we really met that um, call to action from the I Older agree. Act. And I feel like, uh, you know, I was somewhat new to the network at that time, but everyone talked about how different it felt and how everyone came together because it was such a dire need and there was just this different energy all around it. So um, fingers crossed, I guess, until January, but it feels like it's going to happen? I think it's going to happen. It's just pending at the federal level for some approvals and it's I don't know that there's an issue regarding the amounts. I mean, that's really what's changed. This is the amounts of the rate. So shouldn't be a problem. Okay. But Good. the next step will be to demonstrate it's still not enough. Right. Mm-hmm. We got to keep going. Yep. So obviously, we've just barely touched on how important advocacy is and all the different levels. We focused on federal and state, but just sort of in general for someone thinking about their own advocacy. You know, I'd love to end with each of your sort of pieces of advice around how to be an advocate. Grant, do you want to go first? Yeah. Um, So I always try to tell people that it's not as scary as it seems. I think that when you think about Trying to connect with an elected official, you think like, oh, they're so important. They don't have time for me. I'm just one resident. What do I have to say? But I would really say that they're people too. At the end of the day, uh, they want to hear from the folks that they represent. And ultimately, I would also put a plug in there for staff. I think that the staff really care about the issues and they are doing this work because they want to make a difference. And I think calling your legislator, sending them an email, sending them a letter, while that might while that specific thing might ever not ever get to the legislator, a staff member will see that, make a make a point, make a tally, bring it to the legislator if it's written in a very poignant way that you can get your point across and make sure that uh, and say this is a really strong thing that needs to be considered it absolutely comes into play decisions are not made until all of this input is taken in and i think that advocacy it doesn't necessarily matter how you do it um it can be a phone call it can be an email it can be a letter it can be showing up at a town hall meeting i know a lot of our legislators have regular town hall meetings with their constituents um but not being shy to share your voice and to share your perspective and to share why you feel that way and how that is going to add value to your community. Um, That's why they all ultimately got into this, right? They wanted to make an impact. And I think that they are always looking for people to collaborate with. And I think advocacy in any form is always going to be welcomed and always is going to be 
part of that conversation. You might disagree. That that might be okay. It might not necessarily be acted upon, but at the same time, there's a there's at least a counterpoint to that conversation. And I think that's what politics is, right? Two people having different views coming together and and fighting it out to make an ultimate decision. And I think if we shy away from the table, then that will never happen. And and ultimately we we have to keep pushing we have to keep being part of these conversations or um or we just have to or we have to follow the will of someone else and i i just don't think that's okay yeah and i have to say in terms of your important role at COAAA, among many things making advocacy easy for everyone whether it's the social media templates or the letter templates or sending out the newsletters or breaking down you know what's going on in the budgeting process so that staff know where we are I think that's been a huge piece and why we're also continuing to build momentum around advocacy with our staff here, too. So, and Beth, how about you? Well, it's hard to follow Grant and that wonderful description. Um, But I believe everyone's an advocate. Everyone has a story to tell. And in terms of particularly the staff, um, you're the subject matter experts. I think Grant said that well. But most legislators have no idea what the – the work is that the AAA does. They have no idea what people need to be able to thrive in their communities as they age. And so it's really important to share that story. And if you can't share it directly with a legislator for whatever reason, understanding the channels by which you can share that. I mean, the whole idea that we develop priorities is based on those stories, those issues that people who are dealing with them are sharing, and they're sharing them um, through their supervisors and through, um, you know, the association. And so I think that's really important to make sure that you share that story. Um, and it's it's not hard, to, I think, as Grant said, to actually have a conversation with a legislator. But even in your local communities, I mean, it's really important to be an advocate um, as you are talking to your own um, circle of people, your friends, your family, just about what you do, because it does also um, require the public to have an understanding. So when they're considering their votes and, and the things that they think are important, that they understand that the work that the AAA does is one of those important things. Um, so I, yeah, I think everyone's an advocate and, um they do such amazing work, and it's really important to share that story and just making sure that legislators are connected to the real work that's happening when they make decisions. Yeah. And really, again, never underestimating how much work and time and advocacy goes into every dollar that flows into our state and our region that is dedicated to supporting individuals as they navigate aging and disability, right? There's there's so much... Um, so many opportunities for us to lose funding, essentially. Um, and so even just maintaining is so important and then pushing for more and really getting that job done. You're speaking my language. Well, thank you both so much. What a um, very eye-opening and educational session. I appreciate your time. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Hopefully now you know something about the important role of advocacy in working at area agencies on aging.